This is the Walking Home from the ICU podcast. I'm Kelly Dayton, a nurse practitioner and ICU consultant. I help teams create awake and walking ICUs through evidence-based sedation and mobility practices. By hearing from survivors, clinicians, and researchers, we'll explore how to give ICU patients the best chance to walk out of the ICU and go home to survive and thrive. Welcome to the ICU Revolution. Okay, to preface this episode, let me disclose the truth that I am guilty of inappropriate sedation practices. Though I started my career in an awakened walking ICU, when I worked in other ICUs, I slid right into the norm that surrounded me. I noticed that care was very different from the ICU I came from, but the normalcy of this difference blinded me to the reality. That norm included automatic sedation for every patient intubated for any reason, deep sedation, and even jokes about sedation. As a fairly um, young RN in my life and career, I assumed that normal meant okay. I worked in critical care medicine for almost eight years in absolute oblivion. I became aware of the high risks and repercussions of sedation in the middle of my three-year doctorate program that was hyper-focused on the ICU. Shockingly, in training nurse practitioners that were going to guide these practices and prescribe these medications, information about delirium, mobility, long-term outcomes, sedation practices, etc., were never discussed in that program. Even the case studies we use for learning continued the assumption that patients would be sedated upon intubation and even vasopressors would be added to counteract propofol being given in cases that I now recognize did not even have an indication for sedation. The only reason I became aware of any of this was when I heard it from a survivor on a plane ride and then scoured the research for myself. I was shocked and abhorred to learn about what I had been doing. I still get upset to think that I was given the liability as a nurse without the training and education. So I absolutely empathize with nurses that come to me dumbfounded during my trainings and tell me I've been here for years and was never taught how to do the RAS or the CAM score or let alone why I was doing it. I didn't know how dangerous these things were. I share that devastation and indignation. Sometimes sedation and even deep sedation are unavoidable, such as in cases of intracranial hypertension, status epilepticus, the inability to oxygenate with movement, etc. So It is vital to understand that there may be an indication for sedation and oftentimes there is not because continuous sedation comes with a price. To do a risk versus benefit analysis before starting sedation, we must understand and discuss the risks that include increased mortality, infection, pressure injuries, emboli, isocoid weakness, more time on the ventilator, ventilator associated pneumonias, tracheostomies, extensive rehabilitation, delirium, and the long-term life-altering impairments and disability in the form of post-ICU syndrome. So when we're navigating sedation practices, Let's zoom in on delirium. Delirium alone doubles the risk of dying. It increases the risk of long-term cognitive impairments or post-ICU dementia by 120 times. It increases the risk of post-ICU PTSD. When we think of delirium as a manifestation of acute brain dysfunction or acute brain failure, we then see it as equally concerning as other organ failures. As I've mentioned in other podcast episodes, a positive CAM score 
should solicit the same or higher concern than elevated troponin or creatinine, when in reality, it is independently associated with worse outcomes compared to the other organ dysfunctions. We know that sedation is one of the main modifiable risk factors for delirium in the ICU and that mechanical ventilation alone is not an automatic indication for sedation. I love what was written in a recent article published in the Lancet Journal this month. It said, quote, Sedation, defined as the administration of sedating medication to impair consciousness, is a common practice in the ICU due to traditions of clinical teaching and other reasons that are not evidence-based and not necessarily patient-centered, unquote. We know that the depth of sedation impacts the rate of delirium as well as the severity of delirium. One study evaluated ARDS patients with and without COVID. They found that 72% of patients had excessive sedation, meaning deep sedation or a RAS of negative four or negative five or when patients require touch to stimulate a response. 60% of the patients had delirium and 86.4% of those that were deeply sedated had delirium. It was concluded that deep sedation was independently associated with the development of delirium, no matter the age, risk factors, diagnosis, acuity, etc. 41% of the patients died and 90.2% of those deceased patients had been deeply sedated. Like many other studies, it concluded that deep sedation was an independent predictor of mortality. Looking only at the length of stay, the average ICU length of stay of those that had deep sedation was 22 days. Those that were not sedated had an average length of stay of 14 days. That is an eight-day difference. They did not measure discharge disposition, but we can imagine the difference in the condition patients left the hospital where they and where they ended up between the deep sedation and no sedation groups. The ABCDF bundle decreases the rate of delirium by 25 to 50% depending on the level of compliance. The less sedation given and the more mobility provided, the less delirium patients suffered. So when we start sedation, and especially when we titrate sedation, we need to be very careful and sober. The deeper we sedate patients and the higher dose of sedation we give, the worse outcomes patients will have. One Brazilian study looked at the first 48 hours after intubation for 5,719 patients, and they found that only 29.9% of patients were at the target RAS goal of 0 to negative 3, meaning that the other almost 70% of those patients were probably deeply sedated to RAS of negative 4, negative 5. Of course, they found that those that were within in the target rascal had better survival rates. Bottom line is numerous studies confirm that deep sedation is an independent predictor of mortality. So if deep sedation is a level of sedation that makes patients unable to respond to voice and deep sedation doubles the risk of dying, then we need to honestly look around our units and ask ourselves, are we sedating patients to death? Sometimes it takes a fresh perspective and some objective data to answer hard questions like that. So I invited someone that was willing to find the answers in order to inspire solutions. Alexis, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Tell us all about yourself. Uh, well, thank you so much for having me. Um, I am recently graduated from St. Louis University. I did their accelerated uh, direct entry master's program. So I came in with a degree in marketing and did the 21-month program and just graduated on the 20th. Um, thank you. I'm scheduled to take my NCLEX in two weeks. <laughs> Don't hey. 
Um, but I, I was drawn to nursing through, um, river guiding. Actually, I became a river guide. And one of the certifications I had to get was my wilderness first responder and doing the wilderness first responder kind of opened my eyes to a little bit more of, you know, emergency medicine and patient care, which was something that I had always been interested in, but had thought that it was too late. I was in my mid twenties. It was too late. Oh boy. (laughs) That's so old. Yes, I know. Right. Uh, so I, after I got my wilderness first responder, I moved to Portland and got my CNA license uh, and worked in the hospital OHSU there. And during that time, realized that I did want to pursue nursing and had applied to programs kind of all over the country, was looking for something that was accelerated, hoping to be done within, you know, two to three years and kind of got into slew last minute, moved to your in 19 days from Portland and uh, yeah, got started. So that's, that's a little bit about where I came from. That's great. And so you've been a, a student in the ICU. Yes. And what, what drew you into doing critical care medicine? Um, you know, so I think, I think it's kind of the same, the type of people that like adrenaline sports are the same type of people I think that are drawn to critical care. Yep. And I initially had thought I wanted to do uh, midwifery, which is why I was looking at getting a master's. And during my labor and delivery rotation, I absolutely loved when we were in delivery and things were moving quickly and it was high intensity. Um, but then the other nine hours of the day were pretty slow. And luckily most of the women we worked with were in great health. So they didn't really need much, which is what you want. Um, but it just wasn't the pacing for me. And so when I had the opportunity to do my senior capstone in the ICU, I was, I was really drawn to it just because of the pace of the day. You never know what it's going to look like. You could get a patient that's completely stable in the morning and by rounds, things have totally changed. Um, so I like that kind of the unpredictable, high intensity, fast pace, um, environment and, similar to river guiding as well as kind of that teamwork that you are really close with the people that you work with. It is definitely an all hands on deck type of thing, which I got to see a couple of times when we had code situations on the floor. Um, so that, that is all stuff that I found really appealing about critical care. Yeah. I think we all entered wanting the high adrenaline, big stuff, the big sexy things. Right. And, um, so that's been actually probably one of our barriers is that we mistake the the power of the someone calls them the soft skills the smaller yeah. things that are things that are perceived to be smaller um therapeutic touch communication right. um delirium assessment those kind of things um so as a student and this is where I'm really interested because I think this is really insightful as to how we get stuck in our sedation mobility practices so as a student you're coming to the ICU you have no past experience, you don't carry any kind of training in this. So when it comes to sedation and mobility, what has been your immediate understanding upon entering the ICU? Yeah. Um, I think that my immediate understanding is, was very similar to, I would say the lion's share of, of lay people. When they think about people being intubated, they know from TV shows or maybe personal experience that when somebody has 
um, invasive mechanical ventilation, that they're also going to be sedated. It's like those two things go hand in hand. And because my program was accelerated, the time we spent on critical care nursing was pretty, it was a pretty quick overview. Um, and so in that time, it was just kind of, you know, these patients are sedated was what we were told, uh, which I, I think is, is probably pretty reflective of a lot of students experience. And so when I was going into the ICU, uh, I, I had started listening to this podcast, which had given me a little bit of a different perspective, but I went in knowing that I would likely see what I had been taught, which was accurate and reflective of my experience during my senior capstone. Okay. So you were listening to the podcast while pretty new into your ICU experience. Yes. Um, even for seasoned clinicians, it can be very conflicting. Yeah. You hear survivors talking about their experiences and clinicians and researchers, and you're like, oh, this is how it should be. Here's the problem. As And a lot of times people are listening on their way into work. <laughs> then they get into their units and they're seeing the exact thing that we're preaching against, you know, right. that we're so concerned about. Um, so what was that like for you when everything's so new? You know, you're, st- I know how, what it's like. You're still trying to figure out how to run the IV pump. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. And here I am in your head, in your, your headphones being like, we're traumatizing patients when they're sedated. Right. right? So, and now you're faced with this reality while immersed in the, this culture. So how, I just, I'm always curious, how is, what is that like for you? Um, it was, I mean, it was definitely, it was conflicting. That's a great way to put it. I think that for my, the role that I was playing, I knew that in that moment, I could not necessarily be the catalyst that I wanted to be to affect change. However, I knew that there are little things that I could do when I was providing patient care. So I just, you know, speaking to our sedated patients and listening to one of the episodes where someone had said that they were saying their name over and over and over. So just trying to be aware and trying to keep conversation with these patients, normal conversational and explain what we're doing and who knows how much of an effect it had, but I know that from listening to those episodes, patients spoke a lot about the fact that they could be aware, semi-aware of what was happening and no one was talking to them. It was like, they weren't even there. Um, and I, I also had some really good dialogue with a lot of the people that I worked with. I had an incredible preceptor. I love her to death. I feel so lucky to have been paired with her. And she was shocked as well, was, had never heard of awakened walking ICUs, thought that the concept was, you know, from her experience, she sees the spontaneous awakening trials, right? Where in which patients have already become delirious. And so kind of getting in the mindset of, okay, but what if that didn't happen? What if we just didn't cultivate that environment from the get-go was kind of like this light bulb of, oh, you know, perhaps, And she was kind of like, you know, I'd have to see it to believe it. But I was like, maybe we could see it. And just starting to have some of those conversations with with nurses on the unit. And part of my project actually did involve a teaching element at the end. So those were just little ways that I tried to affect some change. And I think just having the conversations. And it's kind of nice when you're a student because you can just be like, well, why are we sedating? They're like, because you're supposed to. Okay, but why? you know, and you can kind of use that the student card to your advantage. 
Absolutely. I've told students that, right? <clears throat> like you're there to learn, you're there to absorb everything that um, you can in that moment. And it's overwhelming. Um, but as part of that, you can ask questions. So maybe there is a reason that the patient is sedated. If there is, you need to learn why right. they're sedated. Um, but that is a powerful question. I think um, that when I propose that in conferences, when we are sedated, intubating patients, we need to ask, is there an indication for sedation? And you can just tell it like it hurts everyone's brains because we never do that. It's just assumed. So don't underestimate the power of just asking that question and making people answer. Why are we doing this? And right. then yeah, having those conversations. And again, there might be reasons why it's necessary and you need to learn that in that moment. Um, so you were having this whole inner conflict and you're learning all these things and then it comes time to do your project. And how did you determine what, what made you want to do a project within this realm? Yeah. The Instagram algorithm worked in my favor. Um, I, one day I just had your podcast pop up and one of the posts I kind of got sucked in and went and I think I read every post on your Instagram and started listening to the podcast. And that was what piqued my interest because I knew that I was going to be in the ICU and didn't have a, po a project yet assigned and was really interested in the idea of having this experience of awake and walking ICUs and what that could look like, but also knowing that for a master's project, you need to find something that's appropriate and, you know, can be done in a timely fashion. And, mm -hmm. um, so we actually had the opportunity to chat and I told you kind of the framework for what the project had to look like. And you had suggested that we examine patients prescribed RAS goal with their actual RAS score, which I think is a great first step to opening the dialogue of why, why are we sedating? How are we sedating? How much are we sedating? And are we compliant with our orders? Um, so that's originally what got me interested. And then just kind of my day to day when I was precepting on the unit, seeing how many patients were intubated and sedated and oftentimes how deeply and not even going in and doing an official assessment, even on patients that weren't mine, but being able to see that they're not responsive to the level that they are prescribed. And that is something that I think is really important to explore when you want to start a conversation about sedation practices as a whole. And that suggestion that I gave you was inspired by um, feedback that I've been hearing from clinicians all over the country and the world of all disciplines. A lot of therapists were saying, I see that the RAS is charted a negative one, negative two, but I go into work with them and they're barely arousable to touch, right? If a patient does not respond to voice, they're deeper than a RAS of negative three and they are deeply sedated, which is an independent predictor of mortality. Right. So a lot of people are concerned when, when they're hearing this, when they're wanting to work with patients, um, they're realizing what is charted is not what's happening. And this whole discussion is not to incriminate nurses. Right. We can't avoid the reality that this is a bad thing, right? This is dangerous to patients. This is dangerous to nurses. This is a huge liability. When we are sedating deeper than the prescribed RAS, we're giving sedation that was not prescribed. We right. are giving medication without an order. And that is outside the scope of an RN um, license. Yeah. That could be a huge liability. So when it's, when the um, repercussions of 
this um, malpractice, I guess, can be lethal. That should ring all sorts of bells, right? Nurses, we've seen in recent events that nurses are um, carrying a lot of liability, which is has, which has been unfair, right? What happened at Vanderbilt was was really alarming to the entire nursing community. So right. I am worried about nurses being held accountable for things that they're never taught or trained on. Yes, nurses that have um, been in the ICU maybe have um, been somewhat taught of the RAS. They're, they have to chart on it throughout the day. But when I'm doing consulting and I'm training at the bedside, repeatedly I am seeing that they do not know the RAS. Mm-hmm. I think um, especially those that have come in during COVID, it pops up in the EHR. They see a yeah. scale, they see what's ordered, and they see what's charted before them. And they're like, oh, yeah, probably it's probably negative two. They're, thereabouts, whatever. And they move on, right? And so they're not taught how to really assess for the rest, but especially they're not taught why, why it's important. Did you see any sense of urgency when and if you know you brought up to your preceptor or anyone, anyone around you, hey, they're arrested negative four, but but they're supposed to be arrested negative one. Did you see any kind of panic about that? Definitely not panic. Um, I do think that there was a level of concern that varied from individual to individual based on a gamut of things, how long they've been nursing, their experience in the ICU, what they may or may not know about sedation. But I don't think that as a whole, the community has learned enough about the the extremely harmful negative effects that over sedation can cause. And so I think that people are under the impression of, okay, they're over sedated, but that's okay. They're sleeping. You know? Yeah, they're asleep. They're resting. It's not that big of a deal. Where in actuality, we can be causing life, life-threatening harm to these patients. Um, something that I was a way that I kind of related it to one of the nurses that I was talking about was we don't put a catheter in everybody. It would be easier, it'd be cleaner, there wouldn't be skin breakdown, but the skin breakdown is not the biggest threat. The threat of infection is, and that is the priority. And same thing with sedation is, okay, they won't be pulling at their lines and tubes if they're deeply sedated, but are we gonna leave them with long-term cognitive deficits? Because that's the priority. And I think that there's just sort of this disconnect between what those of us that have have kind of done a deep dive into sedation know about the negative effects versus just a basic understanding of RAS and sedation. And if you don't know what can cause the side effects, you, you don't know to be concerned. If you've been listening to this podcast, you're likely convinced that sedation and mobility practices in the ICU need to change. The ICU community is facing incredible difficulty with the trauma from the pandemic, staffing crisis, and burnout. We cannot afford to continue practices that result in poor patient outcomes, more time in the ICU, higher healthcare costs, and greater workload for the ICU team. Yet the prospect of changing decades of beliefs, practices, and culture across all disciplines of the ICU is a daunting task. How does this transformation start? It can begin with a consultation with me to discuss your team's current practices, barriers, and to formulate a plan to help your ICU become an awake and walking ICU. I help teams master the ABCDEF bundle through education, consulting, simulation training, and bedside support. 
Let's work together to move your team into the future of evidence-based ICU care. Click the link in the show notes of this episode to find out more. Absolutely. And this is where I get really defensive of nurses because let's say, for example, something happens, right? A delirium happens. There are lethal complications and this goes to court and they're seeing that a RAS is charted as negative two, but the physician and the PT and the OT and anyone else that comes in charts unable to arouse, unresponsive to voice. That looks really bad, right? If you have three other people charting this certain thing, or you have you know, someone charting um, at a negative RAS of negative two and the next nurse comes on and suddenly it's charted at negative four, um, but the dosage of medication hasn't really changed or, you know, different things. There's so many different ways in which this could be exposed and the nurse will be held accountable. Right. Because it's their shift, their patient, they're the one giving that medication. But looking at it, they were never taught the risks of that. They were never really taught how to do a RAS score. Um, They didn't know. and, And so they were just doing what everyone else was doing, right? We do that in so many other ways where we come on shift and we just keep things status quo, right? Unless we're really questioning, why is it this way? Is that right? Is it not? But yet it's going to come down to that nurse most likely, which is completely unfair, right? It's a systemic problem. It's not just that one nurse doing it or even just that one unit doing this is throughout the community. But so I get really defensive Um, and I'm worried about nurses holding that liability because the the public's going to know at some point. Right. Um, and, and this could look really bad and it's, but it's unfair. No one's doing this maliciously. No one's trying to harm patients. But I remember when I first, um, met my, uh, this ICU survivor on the plane ride and I was realizing the trauma he'd suffered. I had the thought, well, this can't be a normal thing because I, I would have heard about it. I would have known I've done ICU in like 11 different ICUs over seven years. You know, I, I would have known. Right. Um, and then when I went on to Facebook groups and I was listening to survivors, like hundreds of survivors talk about this. I was going into the research. I was just enraged. I just thought, what, what have I been doing? And why didn't anyone tell me? Like if I am the one running, starting, titrating the sedation, shouldn't I have a right to know what it actually does to patients? Because I believe just like with everyone else that it's sleep. So when we don't change those beliefs, we cannot change those practices. So, yep. So you you understand and you've seen how this concern, right? You were noticing this. And so you set out on your project to really put it into numbers. How off are our rest schools? Because I'm hearing this from all over the country, but I was like, you know what, Alexis, if you could just figure out, you know, go throughout your unit, break it down to the numbers, compare what's charted to what's actually happening at the bedside. What does that look like? Yeah. Find. So the unit that I did my project on is a large Midwestern medical ICU. So the patient population kind of runs the gamut, pretty broad. You see a lot of different conditions. Um, So on that unit, the breakdown was 52% of patients were oversedated according to their prescribed rascal. So the, the lion's share of patients on this unit if they were prescribed sedation, they were given a RAS goal of negative one to negative two. And 52% were over that, over that prescribed goal. And of that 52%, 38% were one point away on the RAS score from their prescribed goal. And 62% were two points or more. So deeply sedated. 
especially if you are already at a goal of negative two, you're getting into negative four, negative five, you are completely unarousable. And one of the, uh, one of the papers, I can't remember exactly what one it was found that it was, I think it was if patients are negative three or greater, the likelihood of mortality doubles both within the ICU, within the hospital and within the first year of discharge. And uh, it, it was alarming. I had thought that patients would be over sedated. I think that that is common in most ICUs that haven't started this dialogue, but I was pretty surprised that it was as prevalent as it was. And this is not unique to that unit. No. I'm so glad that you did it there. Um, because when you, you shared this at an IC revolutionist group meeting, and if anyone wants to join that, let me know. Um, but when you shared that, everyone was nodding their heads. You know, you had a couple dozen people from all around the country and even the world. And they're like, yeah, that happens. Yep. And, and th that group, they were concerned about it. They were glad to see actual numbers to it, but they were not surprised. Correct. They're like, oh, finally, Alexis put numbers to what I'm seeing at the bedside and my team. So this is not just one nurse. This is not just one team. This is a huge systemic problem and it is lethal. Right. And that was something that I really tried to convey during the teaching portion of my project. I can only imagine what it would be like to be a seasoned ICU nurse and have a student come in and present this information and kind of be like, number one, what are you talking about? And number two, you don't know what you're talking about. Right. And Who are you to tell me? Exactly. And I understand. And that was why it was important for me to try and stress. This was not, this is not unique to us. This is not unique to a shift. This is not unique to a set of nurses. This is pervasive throughout the ICU community. Um, and it was the research that I did along with my paper really highlighted some of that that we're seeing for, for different units that have kind of examined this. Did they seem shocked? I wouldn't say that they seemed shocked. I think that people are aware that patients are heavily sedated. I think the thing that was surprising to them was when I was elaborating on the long-term negative effects. That I think was shocking. I don't think the yeah, the you know, the numbers were necessarily what was shocking. Um, which kind of just circles back to the need for more thorough teaching and better understanding of what sedation actually does to the body. Absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there are some um, isolated people that maybe are, quote, lazy. You know, I've heard people say that. That's not my general experience at mm -hmm. all. When I present these conferences, I see so much concern. People come up to me with tears in their eyes, and I really try not to be abrasive or totally jarring with this, but I'm pretty honest about right. here's the patient's experience. Here's what the data shows. Here's the reality of it. Um, but nurses care so deeply that they are disturbed by it once they know. But I just feel like in past efforts to roll out early mobility or the ABCF bundle, we've been very either tactful or just um, not forthcoming about what we're actually doing. And so it hasn't really made sustainable change. Right. And you have to hit the heart of nurses, which is compassion, love, connection. Like that's what they care. They deeply care about patients. And when they still believe that sedation is sleep, that it's more humane, that's preventing trauma, there's no way you're going to get them to change sedation practices because they believe that they're doing the right thing for patients. And that's what they want to do. Right. So why, why would they ever, I, I would never, right. I would be like, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> so I asked one team, 
when I was at this bedside. I'm like, so do you know why we're doing simulation training or why are we worried about delirium? And I kept hearing because it increases length of stay. And I was like, yes, that is true. It does. I mean, it can increase length of stay by almost five days in the ICU, almost seven days on the floor. Absolutely. But I think that they were, I I got the sense of yes, because administration wants you here to do this training so that we save money. Yeah. It feels like. that's correct but it's not the most correct but not the most correct yet it's an (laughs) aspect of it like when I'm presenting the c-suite about the financial picture I do bring in survivor testimonials but I really do focus on the financial picture which is very compelling right but for clinicians that's not that's not any skin off their back right they're not going to try to save money at the expense of patients but they are going to care about what patients experience and how well they survive so once we talk about that then they're like okay I'm in but if we're just posing this as we're decreasing length of stay, they're they're not going to buy in, right? Right. Um, but once they experience for themselves that it decreases workload, that they walk out the doors better, like all these other benefits, it all adds to it. But they have to hear it from survivors. And then if we're not providing that perspective, we are setting nurses up for um, really inappropriate liability. Yeah. Well, and I know that for the unit that I was on in particular, they the education team did have the intent to try and introduce some of these awake and walking practices early 2020 yep. and COVID hit and it set us back years. And I think on top of that, you also have that generation of nurses that started work during the pandemic. And so their understanding of what nursing is, is, is different than any other generation before them. And many of those patients did have to be deeply sedated because they had to be prone and paralyzed and that was appropriate. And so then when you get in the mindset of sedation, deep sedation is appropriate. It's hard to come out of that and say, you know, in some circumstances, yes, but not in all. And I think and that's, that's what all led thought. to this, this perception of um, <clears throat> higher acuity equals higher sedation levels of sedation. Yeah. Um, I, even, even with physicians, I was at a meeting and someone said, um, yeah, but, um, a lot of our physicians are worried because we like what you're saying, but our patients have vasopressors. And I was not sure how to respond at first. Cause I'm like, well, then what is the indication for sedation in the setting of vasopressors? What if evidence supports that? So even not just, this is not just a nursing problem, right? <clears throat> I mean, there's this universal perception of the sicker patient is the more indication they have to be sedated and even the more sedation they're going to need because they're so sick. Um, And so how do nurses even have a chance to do best practices? And recently I saw a um, video, someone sent me a video um, about, it was, had a propofol bottle, had someone kind of smirking and saying, when the nurse, when you know the nurse before you has been giving extra doses of propofol throughout the night. And obviously that's bothersome. But even the comments were divulging the reality of they're like, yeah, I, I draw a propofol from uh, before the pump and then I insert it after the pump. Like they were sharing their their ways of giving bolus doses and right. just laughing about it. And I was like, don't let any attorney see this. Don't let any family see this. This is such a huge, like you're just exposing your malpractice all over the place. Um, but the fact that they were laughing about it did not show to me so much of cruelty, but of oblivion right if they knew like how oh, we're increasing trauma and death and infections and work and um 
long-term disability and cognitive impairments. Like if they knew that, there's no way. I really don't think any nurse would be joking about that, let alone so openly online. Right. But this is being shared in the thousands, yeah. liked in the tens of thousands. Like it was going like wildfire, like any meme on sedation does because everyone does think it's funny. Right. And I used to laugh at those jokes before I knew. And so when I first started realizing what was going on, I just felt so guilty and so sick. Yeah. Just remembering how nonchalant, how casual and how humorous I found all of it. And I've had to go through this process of just forgiving myself, moving on, um, just letting myself um, have some grace that I just, I did not know. That's not what I was really laughing about right. in my mind. Um, right. But it just is so exposing. And there are so many sedation memes out there that the podcast listeners are just upset about it now. But I don't know any other corner of society in which we openly joke about inhumane treatment that causes suffering and harm um, and even malpractice. Like where else? You know, we're in such a culture that we're very protective of each other right. about being insensitive, about, you know, any kind of um, uh, disparities. And yet, and, and amongst the, the, the discipline that should be the most trustworthy, the most compassionate, the most protective, that's where the worst jokes lie. Right. It doesn't make <laughs> sense. But if people say, like, that's how we deal with our trauma. But I don't think that's really, I don't think that's really where these jokes are rooted. Right. Well, and I think there is something to be said too about this. It's it's kind of like a camaraderie that is formed through making these types of jokes because a lay person doesn't know what propofol is, doesn't know what it does. And so it's like a little nudge to your body. Like, isn't this funny? This is a joke that you and I get. And we kind of discussed this briefly too. I, I had a, a sticker on my water bottle that said, I can't fix stupid, but I can sedate it. Yep. Because I didn't know. I had no idea. And it's almost like a rite of passage to be an ICU nurse. Yeah, it is. And I can and say that because I started my career in an ICU in which we kept almost everyone awake and walking, right? Went to other ICUs and I, I would ask questions like, why are they sedated? Should we get them up? Things like that. But when I realized that, no one else was doing that. And they thought I was crazy. And also you're the new person you kind of want to fit in. Like, I think right. that's a lot of why I joked is I'm like, oh yeah, like, huh, you're right. That is funny. If I were to get indignated at that moment and say, I don't know that that's, a, that's the right thing, especially without knowing the research. Cause I didn't, um, I'd be even more isolated and less accepted. So I think there's a lot of level of, if you're realized you nurse, these are the jokes that you, that, that are funny, right? This is just the way we practice. Um, and it's such a disservice because you're going into the IC because you want to see patients survive and thrive. Right. But when we teach you that this is the best thing to do for patients, and especially this is funny, and that we can control patients with chemical restraints and things like that, we're depriving you of that experience. Yeah. And how are you not going to get burnt out if you're constantly seeing patients, I hate to say it, but like rot in bed, right? Just like lay there and just disintegrate before your eyes. You're doing all this work of turning, running the sedation, the vasopressors to compensate for the sedation. You're doing so much work to keep them alive, yet you never get to see them actually survive. Like right. you may see them roll out of the ICU in a gurney, but you don't really get to see them thrive. How are you going to stay in your, pra in your practice? Why would you stay in the ICU for that long-term? Yeah. What are your thoughts as you're entering the field? Like, you know, we're seeing people leave in droves. Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, I, I, some of my concerns about 
starting work in the ICU is exactly what you described is that I do feel like I know this research. I have this knowledge. I understand what could be done, but I'm the new kid. And I don't really, you know, I'm done with nursing school, but I don't really know anything. Right. And so it's kind of a, it's going to be a tough balance to strike. Um, but I agree. I think that, I think that it just needs to be a mind frame shift from we're just, we're getting them out of the ICU to we're getting them well. Hmm. And that is where I think the disconnect lies, because I think a lot of times we'll have patients come in that are already kind of seen as a lost cause. And so I think that in those instances, it's easier to say, well, you know, I, I did what was ordered and I did what I could do. But if we are trying to revolutionize the way that we're providing care, we can offer these patients a better shot. And it is the ICU. Not everyone's going to make it, but more people could be. And I really think that sedation is a huge thing that we could change that would improve patient outcomes. And it really would take the same amount of work. Like you've said previously, it's, the ICU is work regardless, and you can spread it out over your shift through turns and changes and skincare, or you can cluster it at the front end and try to keep them from being sedated at all. And the choice is yours. So powerful. Polly Bailey, my mentor, the nurse, nurse practitioner that really started this whole process, I call it the Bailey method of allowing patients to wake up right after intubation. She always says that the front end determines the back end of critical illness. Yeah. So if we prevent delirium, prevent ice acquired weakness, it just sets them off in this completely different trajectory. Um, and yeah, you might have to spend another an extra 15, 30 minutes right after intubation, helping them acclimate to the tube and touching their tube and looking in a mirror and things like that. But their family can help with that too. RTs can help with that too. You know, you develop this whole culture where you're not alone as a nurse doing these right. things. Right. But as a nurse, you're the only one turning the patient. You're the only one running that sedation or you're doing the double checks with that. It's just, it, it's an exchange in efforts. If that. Yeah. Um, but nurses need to have the opportunity to experience that. And Alexis, I really hope you get that opportunity and I'm optimistic. I hope so. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm nervous, but I think that it can be done. And I, I know that the education team is on board already wanted to implement this, which I think is huge. Cause like we said, it's not just a one nurse thing. You have to have a team behind you. And if they think it can't be done, then you're going to have a much harder time than if you're on a unit where the team is open to change. So I know that I have those guys in my back pocket. Um, and I'm, I'm hopeful that there are enough people on the unit that are just as curious and interested and like podcasts and <laughs> get on board. Absolutely. I remember years ago before I started the podcast, I was interviewing in a, in a, into an ICO and I mentioned to the medical director that the greatest value I could bring is to help change their sedation and mobility practices and walk patients ventilators. And this medical director said just so casually, yeah, the research shows stuff about that. It's probably good, but good luck getting our nurses to do that. Mm -hmm. And I just it took everything within me to stay calm and composed in that moment because, again, I'm very defensive of nurses. I'm super biased coming from the nursing discipline, but I was like, you must not know nurses like I know nurses. Yeah. It's not that they won't do it. It's like your team. They've never even been exposed to that information, that concept. They've never been given the why, 
the tools to do it, the support to do it. So don't say that they won't do it. Give them a chance to do it. So your findings are so significant, but not in not to incriminate nurses, but to expose the lack of support that nurses have had, especially during COVID, that they've been left on their own to navigate these things with this weight of impact that they have no clue about. Right. And so add that to the list of injustices that are happening to nurses right now. (laughs) And in reality, if we're talking about safe staffing ratios, more education, more support, better culture, advocating for sedation mobility practices is probably the best way to do that. If you want to put a dollar figure to why they should have texts on the unit, why nurses shouldn't be increasing sedation to go answer phones or running to grab bedpans, like that's why. Right. So nurses that may feel defensive about your findings need to understand that this is in support and advocacy for nurses for greater support, staffing ratios, all of it so that nurses can really practice within their license and to the top of their license. Yeah, absolutely. So lone nurses out there, it, we, we appreciate how lonely and frustrating this can be to have this perspective, but please hang in there. If you even just changing, um, enlightening the sedation, avoiding sedation on your shift for that one patient, having those communications with your colleagues, teaching them in that moment, like, Hey, I, I see that, you know, that came on shift and they were negative four, they're, they're arrested negative one or zero right now. Let's keep them that way because they have delirium and we need to treat that delirium or let's avoid deeply sedating them because that increases mortality. Just those like little comments, those little tidbits, they plant the seeds, they bring right. awareness. And so even just you as one new nurse, you are making an impact. Even right. as a student nurse, you've made an impact. So don't underestimate your power as a nurse ever. Thank you. <laughs> Well, and I think about too, I think when, you know, when Polly Bailey was starting this, she couldn't change sedation practices for the entire country, the entire hospital, the entire unit, but you start with one and you change that person's life and it builds from there. And I think that that is, that is something that I keep in mind when I am starting to feel overwhelmed is that I don't have to change the whole world in the day, but I can start with that one patient's world and go from there. Absolutely. And the impact that it makes on your colleagues to see your patient awake, communicating, even mobilizing, that just is all part of the paradigm shift and it's going to build from there. So thank you, Alexis, for caring about this, for your incredible work as a student and keep us posted on your career. I'm excited to hear what happens. Yes, absolutely. We'll be calling you for a consult soon, I'm sure. (laughs) I hope so. (laughs) Thank you so much. Yeah. Schedule a consultation for your ICU, as well as find supportive resources such as the free ebook, case studies, episode citations, and transcripts. Please check out the website www.daytonicuconsulting.com.